Hey everyone, welcome to the Thanksgiving week edition of Pro and Dialogue. My name is Danny Servick, and I couldn't be happier to have this week's guest regarded as the premier international talent evaluator in the world, um, the director of player personnel for the Dallas Mavericks, who by the way is the NBA franchise, who's been the leader uh, on having international talent on the roster for many years, and again this year they have the most with seven, um, the great Tony Ronzoni. But first, with this being Thanksgiving week, I wanted to just talk about something that I'm very thankful for um, and, and expand upon uh, just a couple thoughts I've had with, with the high school season kicking off here and, and going around to games and in, in this week tournaments. Uh, I'm thankful that, that I played for a great high school coach. I played for the legendary Ronnie Stapler at Grissom High and came into that as a as a freshman that just was hoping to make the freshman team, hoping to make the JV team, hoping to make the varsity team. And then along the way, just through being in part of his great program, was fortunate enough to, to, to be a participant and, and point guard on the state championship team and then signed to play in college. But high, that's not what high school sports are about to me. High school sports, whether it be basketball, baseball, whatever, the, uh, the sport specific, it's another classroom. It's, it's, it's a classroom that... You spend more hours in than your your math class or your science class or whatever. And in addition to to teaching you how to uh, attack a 2-3 zone or what man offense we're going to run or this, it's about problem solving. It's about dealing with small groups and relationships and conflict and adversity and being told to do things you don't want to do. All things are are, are going to be above and beyond the score. And I think that's where... Um, a lot of people get sideways is how do they define winning? You know, I know there's the scoreboard and you want to win, you put time into it. And I don't know if it's so much the culture of with travel sports and in, in this regard with travel basketball and the people go around and, you know, that's not what high school athletics are. High school athletics to me are about, uh, creating memories, creating, uh, you know, setting, setting your, your son or your daughter up for the rest of their life. Um, I've had a couple parents this week call or come up to me and, and when they, they start their, their comment with, you know, I don't know really anything about basketball, but well, that's the part we should stop talking uh, because you don't. And <laughs> high school athletics for me are, are, are education and uh, in, in, in a learning. But like I said, the, the, the memories from that and, and being a part of a great program, and that's what Coach Saper provided for us at Grissom and, and things. And, and I was lucky enough, you know, where I played in college and, and, I started every game in college at McNeese and in Birmingham Southern, but I probably can't remember uh, 10 plays, 10 specific things from my college career. But I can close my eyes here today and remember my 10th grade year when we played Lee for the JV City title and Coach Collins, our history teacher, offering bonus points to anybody in our class to come uh, to cheer on the game. I can remember practices I can remember I mean everything from high school and I think that just kind of went to the culture of the program that went to um, the memories that were being made and, and, and that that was where it was the joy and so that's that's kind of my thing to 
to coaches, to parents, to like, how do you define winning? Like what, what, what is winning truly? Uh, I know it's, it's a, it's a challenging culture now where parents have unrealistic expectations, some school administrators, and if coaches don't win, they make changes right away. And so there's a balance with that. I, I, I get that, but I still think the, the bigger task is not how many points a game you're scoring or what's your system, how many tweets you can make, how many Instagram posts you can make about what you're doing. Um, I think it's about what you're doing with those kids in that locker room and creating those memories. Um, and parents, just enjoy the journey. In, enjoy the games. Enjoy enjoy watching your, your son, your daughter. Just compete. Don't get caught up in the anger. Don't get caught up in um, all the screaming, all the – just because you're going to blink and it's going to be gone, you know, like – I have a 10th grade son, and I, I want him to do well. I want him to make shots. I don't want him to turn the ball over. I don't, I don't want to see him struggle. I, I, so I, I get all that, but I also just enjoy the moments when he's playing. You know, he, he had a, a terrible leg injury last year and was out six months. And then the day he comes back from his leg injury, setting up for his first game back, my dad passes away. So there's a lot of room where I could be angry. You know, I could be angry that he missed the time I could be angry that when he had to come back you know my dad didn't get to see him play again that the last game that he got to see him play was the one where he broke his leg but um you, you know you move past that you you move through that and then that that's where the the thankfulness comes in that every day that they they get to step on the the court or they get to step on the turf or they get to step on the dirt or whatever their surface or whatever their 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 sport let them compete let and, and then enjoy watching them compete, support them, be there for them when they need it, but let them learn along the way. Let let that let that classroom teach them about life. Let them let that te- classroom teach them about you know how how to overcome things that they're going to have to overcome. But then let them create their own memories, and then let them when they get to be forty eight uh, have a podcast and talk about their JV City title. So that's my Thanksgiving wish. That's what I'm thankful for. Uh, I'm thankful for Coach Stapler. I'm thankful for how he impacted me, and I'm thankful for every day that I get to to get around and watch uh, my son uh, play in high school and, and my younger one in middle school. So, with that, let's get on to another great teacher, an, uh, another great um, just coach, uh, more so than a, than a tremendous NBA executive, Tony Ronzoni. Uh, he's been a friend for for 20 plus years. He was one of the the most instrumental guys in 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 shaping my uh, journey through the professional sports arena. He's just the best. He's been there since Dirk Nowitzki at the beginning, uh, and many more. And then obviously now with Luka Doncic and what he's doing, um, and just some great stories from him. Some great anecdotes. Uh, just and and what I'm hoping for with this being Thanksgiving week and some everybody has some time. Get your note put out. Get your your uh, your pencil. And just jot down the stuff he talks about. You know, he's he is one of the premier uh, scouts in the world, evaluators, and what he goes to look at games and players is not what you're going to think. And hopefully you can kind of grow from that. So um, grab a coffee, grab your beverage, put up your feet, let him talk about soccer and his great Kobe Bryant stories from USA Basketball, and enjoy the great Tony Ronzoni.
So when I started the podcast, um, we talked about, you know, at the core of it, it's a conversation to share observations, stories, philosophies, lessons learned from, from my lifelong journey throughout the world of basketball and in, in doing so, trying to offer insight and the perspective from a player, coach, scout, executive, agent, parent, um, and bring in different people from all regions and all around the world. Um, I've been incredibly fortunate to learn from some, some great people at every level along the way, um, but couldn't be happier to have this week one of the two guys that are kind of been my main anchors in learning uh, on the professional level. Um, and they're both kind of tied together. One is Michael Curry, but I never would have met Michael if it wasn't for our guest this week, who is regarded as the premier uh, international scout in the world, international expe- expert, and all things fun in between, the director of player personnel for the Dallas Mavericks, Tony Ronzoni. Tony, my friend, how are you doing, sir? I'm doing great. I'm happy to be on your show and, and just being part of uh, your success and the story of how you started and, and, and what you're doing to help your community and, and everybody in the game of basketball and your players. And so good to be on your show, Danny. Thanks, Tony. I, I you know, there's, there, we, we literally could probably do like a five, six series, uh, six part series on, on different things. And so uh, I want to kind of condense as much as we can into this one episode and um, cause there's so many different layers and you've got so many great stories and things, um, for, for everybody that is not, uh, in the know of, of, of who is Tony Ronzoni, give us the, the, the best cliff note consolidated version of kind of how, uh, you kind of became and got in the world of, of, of working in the NBA and, and, and getting in the, uh, the executive side. Well, it's kind of all started out. I was raised by my mom, and, you know, my dad was around quite a bit, but my mom raised me uh, by herself, and, and sports was kind of an outlet for me. So I, I played soccer, I played baseball, I played basketball, and I continued to play those sports all the way through high school at my high school, Bishop Out High School. Actually, my twin boys go to Kate and Austin, which is pretty exciting that they're going to go to the same high school that I went to. Um I played at a high school team that was very successful. Uh, we won state championship in California. I think I went 96-9 and nine for my three years there. My high school basketball coach was my mentor, my father figure. And I also ended up playing baseball and, and, and got recruited pretty heavily in baseball to play in college and decided to play at University of Nevada, Reno, uh, for Sonny Allen, who used to be the former coach at Old Dominion and won a national championship there. And, and we went to the tournament two years I was there, and I was very excited and the crazy thing is after my first year of, of winning the Big Sky Championship and making all Big Sky academic team, the baseball coach grabs me and said, I want you to play baseball. Well, the only guy that's really done that is Danny Ainge of the Boston Celtics. And a lot of people don't know that, that I also play college baseball. So after my freshman year in Nevada, going to the NCAA tournament, we got beat by University of Washington that had Christian Velp and Detlef Shrimp, the two Germans. That was kind of my start even in more into international basketball. I was so intrigued with her fundamental skills and how they played the game and they played the game the right way. Um, I ended up going and playing on the baseball team and division one and traveling and playing USC and playing all these top <laughs> college uh, teams. And so then I uh, played 10 years there. I went to the tournament my second year in Nevada again. Uh, I didn't play baseball my second year there. And then I ended up transferring to Long Beach state. And during my redshirt year, I ended up playing baseball, Long Beach state, which, you know, ended up having about four or five pros on that team. And, uh, they tried to convince me to play full-time, but I just love the game of basketball too much, and I still had this dream that I was going to make the NBA, and so I played at Long Beach State, and uh, 
my dream didn't come true, but the game of basketball, there's more dreams than just playing in the NBA. The, the, the game of basketball gives you an opportunity to see the world. And I ended up uh, playing overseas. I ended up going to New Zealand. I uh, played in Australia. I tried out, went for a few teams there. I ended up traveling around the world with a lot of tour teams and started realizing that I kind of had a niche to play overseas. And so when I was in New Zealand after my first year, I, I went back my second year and, our head, and the head coach uh, had some health issues and he, and he had to resign. So about two weeks before I come over, the president of the team said, Hey, we want to make you player head coach. Well, I'm 21 years old <laughs> and I got appointed as the youngest head coach in the history of New Zealand basketball. The tough part is that as being an import player playing overseas is you got to play 40 minutes a game. So when the, when I had to call timeout, I had also talked to the team and it became very difficult uh, and I had to be in great condition. So I learned that it was very difficult to do both. Uh, I wasn't like Bill Russell back in the day with the Celtics doing it. I was doing it at a small level in New Zealand, but I truly enjoyed it. And I had a niche for coaching because of my high school coach. And because their seasons were played in the off seasons in the summer, more in the summertime, I would in the winter and go back to my high school and coach with my high school coach at my alma mater. And that's when I started getting more into the basketball, more into coaching. So I did that a few years. And fortunately, when I, at age 26, I got offered to be the assistant coach at Arizona State for Bill Frieder, Lynn Archibald, and George McCorn. So I was working for three head coaches as the third assistant at age 26 in the Pac-10 at the time, wasn't the Pac-12. And we went to the tournament when I was there, got a chance to experience that. So, you know, my three years, three out of my six years being involved in college basketball, I went to the NCAAs. And so I had a niche of winning, I had a niche of – and while I was at Arizona State, I brought over – um, the first Australian player uh, to play uh, in college, uh, Tony Ronaldson, who ended up playing 20-plus years in the Australian NBL League. And he helped us get to the tournament. And I kind of started realizing that, you know, international players can play in college basketball, and there was very few at the time. And I was kind of on something before all this kind of, you know, went to explosion where there's now over 250 Australians playing in, in, in college basketball right now. I think Tony was like one of maybe two at the time. Um, and he was a high profile player. So I was able to bring him in as one of my first recruits during that time. And then the crazy story, Danny, I was at a game and somebody invited me to their, to meet with them. And, and, uh, it was, uh, uh, the, the Prince, uh, Bill from Saudi Arabia offered me to be the junior national coach and national coach of Saudi Arabia. And I was at 27, two years in college basketball coaching. And I'm thinking, I'm going to give this up to go to Saudi Arabia where we just had the Gulf War. <laughs> but I was very uh, determined and very into experiments and it's trying different things in life. And I decided to go for it. And I went over there and I coached for a year. Uh, it's, I could have a whole podcast that's on my stories and experience of being over there in the Middle East during that time. And the following year, we played in a tournament in Dubai and the United Arab Emirates. And I fell in love with it and got offered like five jobs after I was coaching in that tournament. And ended up going to Dubai and coaching there for about living over there for six years. And during that time, I would travel with my team to Czech Republic. We would go to all these tournaments around the world. And I would I run into all these great players around international basketball. And I said, look, so many of these guys can play in college. And then I'm looking at some of these guys can play in the NBA. So I was in a tournament. I ran into a seven-footer named Wang Juju in China. Mm-hmm. And when I was in... Dubai at the time, I just would do a lot, go to tournaments and be learn from different people. So I went to the uh, Goodwill Games that were held in St. Petersburg, Russia in 1994 and ran into Donnie Nelson there. Well, I, ran, I knew Donnie before that. 
uh, and he was shocked that I was there. Him and I were the only, he was the only NBA scout. And I was the only basically American guy there just trying to be there. I saw Italy beat our uh, USA team that, that George Raveling and, and uh, Kelvin Sands were coaching, who had Michael Finley, they had Damon Stoudemire, they had a really good team. And I saw the Italian team run by Tori, how well coached they were, how these guys could play. I saw these Russian team. And Donnie kind of told me, he says, look, you got to get an NBA because, you know, this, he was, you know, dealing with Sarunas, Marcellonis. He said, the niche is this international game. So three years later, 97, I just get on a plane, fly to Chicago on a whim, go to the Hyatt Hotel, run into Donnie. He goes, what are you doing here? I said, actually, I'm, I'm actually leaving for North Korea next week uh, to do a clinic. They asked me because I was doing clinics for FIBA all around the world. And he says, North Korea. He says, you're going to see that kid, uh, the seven foot, seven, six kid. I said, Oh, that's seven nine guy. I said, yeah, Michael Rye. He changed his name. I said, yeah, he's going to be at my clinic. He goes, you you got to come to my room tonight. We got to talk. And so I go to his room. He calls his dad, Nelly, in, who's all time winning NBA coach. And he looks at he, you know, asked me if I want a Bud Light beer. And I'm like, yeah, I'm not trying to impress anybody. I don't care. So I I uh, sit down and Nelly looks at Donnie. He goes, you want to hire him? And he goes, yeah. And he goes, well, make get it done. And so Donnie and I sit there, and all the things saying, "Oh, I'm getting hired," but that wasn't my goal or plan. I just kind of went there in the wind to see what this NBA thing was about. And so he ends up talking me into getting hired by the Mavericks, where they were just taking over. And he asked me if there's any good Chinese players, because at the time the team was owned by Ross Pro Jr. I said, "Yeah, there's a seven footer that'd be a great second round pick." So again, I got so many stories. I'm just trying to move this quickly, but we ended up. Uh, uh, and then at the time we were dealing with Dirk Nowitzki because I knew about Dirk and Wurzburg and then, and then Donnie kind of orchestrated how it was going to happen. But anyway, we drafted Dirk Nowitzki. Uh, the year later, we ended up drafting Wong Juju, the seven footer yeah. from China, the first Chinese player. We ended up drafting Ed Guardanaro, the first player from Mexico to get uh, drafted into the NBA. So, you know, we kind of went German, you know, Dallas trip was before Dirk, but we got yeah. a great player in Dirk. Uh, we traded for Steve Nash and, uh, they both struggled the first year. And uh, we thought we were going to get fired after those two guys because uh, Steve was getting booed and, and Dirk was struggling his rookie yeah. year. And Donnie kind of looked at me and said, look, we may have to look for another <laughs> job because uh, these guys aren't panning out. You know, hindsight, down the road, we got three MVPs out of both of them and championships. So that's kind of how it expired. That kind of how it went. And then I, two years later, uh, Joe Dumars called Donnie yeah. and asked me to, Come to Detroit, went to Detroit for about 10 years. We won a championship there, had a great run, got Mehmet Okur in the second round, Carlos Delfino, Tayshaun Prince late in the first, and had a great run with some great people working with Joe. And Donnie, I've been very fortunate. And then went to Minnesota for a year and a half. Things didn't work out. And then back to um, Dallas. And then the last thing is in 2006, after our USA team got beat in Japan, Jerry Colangelo, Mike Krzyzewski called me in Phoenix when I was based out of here. And asked me to join the USA Olympic team so we can educate our USA players on the world of basketball and teach them that it's about the USA in front of their jersey and it's not about the name on the back of your jersey. So I spent seven years with the USA Olympic team, was able to fortunately be humble to get two gold medals in 2008-2012 in London and then a world championship gold medal in 2010 in Turkey. And now I'm back with Dallas, and uh, that's where I'm at now. So I hope that wasn't no, that, long-winded and it's too much, but I try to condense it the best I could. No, that 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 in itself could be the whole intro. I, I want to come back and a little bit later and ex- expand some on on the USA basketball stuff. But I think a good jumping in point. So, and in, in when you roll through, so we met um, back in 1998. So you had I I didn't realize you had just joined Dallas. So 
the coach who signed me at McNeese State was a guy named Bill Peterson. And so Coach Pete, um, in here in the six degrees of separation from the Dallas Mavericks, Coach Pete had coached Donnie Nelson Jr. on an, an AIA travel team back before even I, I think, came to McNeese. And I remember when I was there my freshman and sophomore year, Pete would go work training camp out with the Warriors where Donnie was and Sharunas was. Um, and uh, a few years obviously had passed through that. And, then, and so when Pete had joined the Mavericks, I came out to training camp. And I remember that fall because um, I was working as an investment broker with Morgan Keegan at the time because I was going to get into coaching. My dad got sick, so I kind of got redirected in life for a little bit. And then after he got better, Pete kind of knew my whole story. He said, why don't you come out to Dallas? And I remember, so that would have been the very first training camp that you had Dirk, you had Bruno Sundoff, Nash was in his, yep. I think, second year. Of course, Michael Finley was the superstar, I think, on that team. And you had Hubert Davis, who's now an assistant in North Carolina, Cedric Sabalos, Sean Bradley was with that group. Um, I can remember that camp like it was yesterday and, and hung out there and met you, met Gallo, uh, kind of in at that time, and I've told this time and time again, you guys were the, were were it in terms of international basketball. Like you guys, that was like, it's funny now, 20 plus years later, like you guys were, were the, the hub of it, you know, Amadou's with, uh, NBA Africa. And, uh, you, so it's just, it's neat to kind of look back from where things were then, like you said, where Dirk had just been picked, uh, and Bruno and then, and then Wong Juju to where it is now to where you've had our, what, sixth consecutive season with over a hundred players, uh, on opening night rosters, I think we had 108 again. The Mavericks, uh, which is not any coincidence, have the most in seven. Um, and so I just think that rolling from where it got started, from where you are to where the game has, uh, is now at in terms of where, you know, 25% of the league or international players, that, that just goes to speak to how uh, influential I think you were in that movement, uh, in, in, in exposing it and making it, seen by others um and i just you know that's one of the the many on the long list of reasons where i just think how uh, tremendous you are and impactful in the game of basketball yeah it's been, we've been very fortunate that we've had you know that working with donnie is the vision has been that you know uh players are everywhere and and we get caught up in america into the sometimes of the game we get caught up in the athleticism how high you could jump and we forget about you know basketball is a skill game and you 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 got to have skills to play and now the rest of the world and especially the nba and college now is seeing that you don't need a guy that can jump over the roof uh to 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 have on your organization you need a guy that can set screens rebound a guy can you know make plays with the ball you know you need you need guys that know how to play the game, high basketball IQ. That's becoming more important, and you can see the way our game's changed now in the NBA with the spacing, passing, and cutting, reading the defense. And that's basically we've become now more of an international game in college and NBA now, and I see it more and more. Um, so these players are being able to adjust. They're having more success. Um, they, they're the defensive ability, they used to always get um, – they can't play defense, this and that, but they understand angles as well as anybody in the world. Um, and they're doing quite fine in our league. Yeah. Talk, uh, before we kind of move in, because I want to spend some time just talking about this, the overall development in, in international players. So we touched on, obviously, Dirk. You, mem you mentioned Mehmet, and, and that's one of my um, favorite stories. And, and I we talked about it um, 
a couple episodes ago with somebody, but one of my one of my great memories with you uh, and just in terms of basketball was uh, would have been the late summer, early fall of 2002. You were in Detroit and you were having a little small mini tournament before the world championships and you had Turkey, Argentina, Lebanon, and a little collection of you know, some college, some some overseas guys for a U.S. team. And we were in the Pistons practice facility. You had told me to, to, to fly up. And so me and my really good buddy Scott Staper came up and we're sitting down and it's literally the before the, the first game and it was Argentina and I think Lebanon were about to play. And we're sitting down courtside with some of the Piston coaches. And, and I remember asking, I was like, hey, who's, you know, who's good in this game? And you're like, oh, Ginobili. And I was like, who? And you're like, you don't know Ginobili? And I was like, no. And then like the opening tip, uh, I think it was probably like Scolo Oberto tips this ball up to him. And he kind of like deflects it with his right hand over the shoulder of the defender running up, catches it with his left and just goes up and hammers it. And you look at me and you're like, now you know Ginobili. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> like, I remember that so vividly. Uh, but that was, you know, again, that was before anybody knew who these guys were. And then the Argentinian team went through and had an amazing, you know, 10, 15 run, 15 year run. And that was obviously to the beginning of Mehmet. And, and you know, he had a couple years there, won the championship and then went on and had an amazing career with the Jazz. So um, you've had guys like that. But the one that I want to spend a little bit of time on before we kind of move on. So just, I mean, obviously you were uh, incredibly involved with, with, with Luka Doncic, who is just. I mean, he's must-see TV every night, and obviously now you guys have Porzingis, and it's it's incredible television to have, you know, finding a, a finding a point in a center are probably the two hardest things to do in our sport, and you have two incredibly young ones, and I mean, Luke is 20, and Porzingis, I guess, is probably still 23, 24. Like, just talk about the whole process of Luca and finding him and going through and, and just uh, just what he's like to be around on a daily basis. Well, one of the things in the NBA is you got to be, you know, um, you want to try to get on players before they get on the radar, um, and you and you can evaluate them early. So the the great thing is the league has rules where you can go to certain tournaments, the junior tournaments that are certified, um, and I would go to those all the time. And sometimes I'd be the only executive there that was, you know, I'd say that has some decision making ability and. And there would be sometimes very few NBA teams that show up to these events. And, you know, you get to put an eye on guys. So, you know, going to a 17, 18-year-old tournament and you see a 14-year-old kid out there that's 14 years old that are playing against 17, 18-year-olds that is the best player on the floor makes you take notice. Um, but when you saw Luca originally, you, you would see a guy with a high basketball IQ, shot it well, plays with no fear, confidence, um, living – away from his home country, away from his family. Now his family didn't move over to Madrid. Um, but he's learning to be a pro at 14 years old. And you see a confidence level that's amazing. Now, you you would go and people would nitpick. Oh, he's not quick enough. Um, he, can, he can't defend in our league. He's not this, not that. You know, and you got to be careful to that. My, my philosophy when I look at and evaluate talent is I look at the positives. I don't look at the negatives. Because I look the, the negatives can be taught can be and and everyone's body grows at a different pace and can, and can be you can teach how to become a better defender with angles in that avenue but one thing you can't teach is fear how to play hard basketball iq and just knowing how to read the game and that's Ginobili, as you just spoke before he had that feel delfino had a little of that feel not as good as Ginobili, but he had that feel but luca has a 
a wire, I call it. It's, a, it's an extra wire. It's the wire that Bill Russell had. Magic had it. LeBron had it. Michael Jordan had it. Uh, Kobe had it. Uh, Oscar Robertson had it. And, and Larry Bird had it. Kevin McHale had it. It's, it's something you can't teach. There's no one teaching Luca how to make these plays. You're not getting him in practice to say, Luca, if the defender fakes you left and right, you're going to look left and you're going to hit Dorian Finney-Smith with a no-look pass. You're not teaching that. That's just something he knows and feels on his own, and that's the hardest thing to evaluate, and evaluating that is special, and that's the kind of stuff I look for. I want to find something, you know, like Ben Wallace in today's game. Nobody would probably like Ben Wallace. He's six six. He's a center, um, can't shoot. And, you know, Ben probably should be mad if I said that, but, you know, his post game is very limited. But one thing, Ben, you cannot teach is he's the hardest working player. He's a defender. He knows how to play. He makes plays. He stops guys. Uh, he does stuff you can't teach. Um, and, and that's something that I know Michael Curry, I'm sure, went on your show, could tell you about Ben Wallace. Is he understood about how hard he plays and how a factor he was for us winning so many games in Detroit. So Luca has that it factor that that you that I always try to look for in players. Yeah, no, he he is um, he's just so much fun to watch, and it's it's mind blowing that he's that he's twenty and and doing you know doing the things he's doing and in, in, in the production that he is, and um, yeah, I mean I've always been a uh, bias towards the Mavs just from our relationship and all the guys, but I just. Um, yeah, I, 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 you know, knocking on wood that he stays healthy and keeps together because I think you guys have a chance to make a fun run. Um, let, let's go back to and, and talk a little bit more just because, I mean, you, you know it better than anybody else that's out there. And, and one of the things that we like to do is, is try to just share on how uh, youth development in different pockets around the world and how, how does how does Luca developing like this and how are, are the, you know, Ginobili's in these different parts. Um just from kind of like a macro standpoint and, and from a ph- philosophical standpoint, just in terms of the, the development of skill, the development of team concepts, um, and you know, you can just kind of flow in any direction you want to go with that. You can kind of talk about like what countries you think do it the best. I know Australia is unbelievable right now. Spain has been a good one. Just kind of what, what you've seen from your travels and why, why are they so good at it and why, you know, uh, what can we learn from here in the States that they're doing so well? Well, one of the things that parents ask me or if they ask you, they always ask, you know, should my kid play soccer? I always say, yes, you could put, have kids play in a fun youth soccer league at four and five and six, seven years old. Um, and I, I'm a big believer in that because if you look at the players that have come into the NBA, they all play soccer some form of, and it's because of the footwork and they do And even in Australia, the kids there play soccer. They're growing up where they're playing AFL, where they're doing a lot of stuff with their footwork and, um, South America, Europe, uh, uh, South Pacific, they're all developing these kids because they're playing soccer. And I'm a big believer in that because of the foot skills. And the other thing is, is they, they, the rest of the world, they teach players how to face up first. That's why you see, Laura, Laura Markinen, Jetless Shrimp, the Dirk Nowitzkis, all these seven-footers can face up and shoot because they teach the game outside on the perimeter first. They teach them how to handle. They teach them how to shot fake. They teach them because they have the developed the footwork from the soccer mentality. They know how to play with pressure. The speed or the length doesn't bother them. They can, they can create space, and that stuff's real important. And what happens is in our youth basketball today, we, we play zone defense way too much. Uh, there's a lot of leagues around the world now 
like all uh, leagues under 16 years old, you're only allowed to play man to man. Um, you get away from the zone because we're not teaching our kids how to play man. One of the things the European kids do, if you go watch youth games, they all play man. And, and they're, they're, and, and we supposedly have the quickest, fastest players in the world in America, but we got kids sitting in the zone defense. The other thing that we're, we're doing it just as a kid is we're taking a kid as a third grader. He's five foot nine. Well, guess what? The kid doesn't, and we put his back to the basket and we make him play down on the block. Well, guess what? That kid doesn't grow anymore. So when he's 16, he's still 5'10", and he doesn't want to play the game of basketball because he doesn't have much success because the reason is because we're not teaching him how to play outside and learn how to handle the ball, learn how to shoot it, and be able to become guard uh, uh, orientated. And that's the way our league is now. And that's why the, the international basketball has grown in popularity over here, and that's why we're playing more like that is because we're getting more skilled people. Yeah, and the other thing, too, is that I feel in, you know, look, I think there's a, I've been around a lot of great AAU coaches and programs that do a good job. I've also been around a lot of AAU programs where they're not teaching and they're just throwing the ball out and they're letting their best players shoot the ball 40 times. They're not doing that in Australia at AIS in, in, in the, their Commonwealth sports in Canberra. They're not doing that with their youth programs. Australians have 250 players playing American college basketball right now. There's a reason for that. They're skilled. And there's no reason why we cannot develop our kids better in America. And I think the AAU needs to change the rule set. I would say all teams under 16 years old, they're not allowed to play zone defense, girls and boys. And, and you're going to force coaches to coach and teach. It's hard. I know there's a lot of volunteer coaches. I get it. But you got to let kids learn to play man on defense. you got to make them become, uh, um, accountable if they get beat on defense. That's, that's important. And we got to teach kids to play outside and we got to learn to pass the ball. We got to learn to share it. They do a better job on the rest of the world, Daniel. And that's where we're lacking. And, 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 and the Serbian philosophy, that's why Serbia for a small country, Slovenia's only got 2.5 million people and they're producing NBA Goran Dragos, Luka Doncic, you go down and they're producing NBA players. And it's because of the skill set. And that's where we got to do a better job. Um, and if we do a better job of that, we're going to have a lot more success with our youth because we do have uh, quicker players. We jump higher. That, that's natural. And the shooting is starting to become more important now in America, which I see, which is huge because of Steph Curry and Clay Thompson and guys like that. So that's a positive. But Australia, Serbia, Spain, all those countries do a phenomenal job in youth development. And they spend more time in the gym and less time playing games. Yeah. That's that's probably the bottom line. T tell me what you think. To, I, I think I know the answer on this, and, and this is one of my uh, soapboxes in, in, in being around in, in, at the youth level and seeing is I, I can't stand that we don't use a shot clock in the development of our players. And everybody we have on from any country that we've talked to that I, you know, 14-year-olds, 15-year-olds are playing with a shot clock, and it teaches you to, to be skilled. It teaches you to learn to play the game and play with pace and all that. I mean, we're, we're, you know, that was one of the things. Um, my son is a 10th grader now and played on the Under Armour circuit this past year, and, and that was one of the, the most, you know, the, the three, my three favorite tournaments I think we've ever done is because we had a shot clock, and it was just great. The kids were like, this is unbelievable. This is fun, and, you don't, you know, you can't sit around and, and muck up the game sitting in a zone. you got to play man. you got to play a shot clock, and – like, tell me, like, just just the impact of that and the overall development. Because I know we're starting to see it in a few states here and some of the high school federations, but just the, the use of that in the overall development of, of, of our youth. 
Oh, it's huge because now you're making kids have to react quicker with the ball. They got to make plays, and that's basically if they want to continue to play the game in college and and, and go to the next level. And you're a player NBA, you got to learn to play with a shot clock, and you got to learn to play with a better pace, and you got to learn to move without the ball. You become more quicker with your mind. Uh, you read the defense better. So I think it's all positive. I think the whole everyone needs to run to go to the shot clock, and every state in America needs to. I think it'll be better basketball. I think everything will improve. I think our talent level will improve. Our skill level will improve. Everything will improve with the shot clock. So I'm a, I'm a big believer in the shot clock. And then the other thing I want to just mention, because I know a lot of youth parents follow you, and, and I know that you talk to a lot of kids in your program. And I, just, I want people to understand is that when I go evaluate talent, I don't care who scores the most, most points. I do not care at all. I don't look at the box score and the points. I look at the box score and who takes charges. Who makes the pocket passes? Who makes the assists? Who runs hard down the floor? Who's a good teammate? Who has a good attitude? Who listens to their coach? Who pays attention? Who looks at their teammate when they make a get pass and they high-five them? I don't care about how many points. Points do not get you to the NBA. I used to watch Ricky Rubio, and people would criticize, thinking, I don't know if he'll be a good NBA player, this and that. I would watch Ricky Rubio score four points and get seven assists in Europe, which is basically 14 assists, in college basketball, and I would see him impact the game and make plays and make his team win. I saw him do it 17 years ago when he started against us, and he went against Chris Paul and Jason Kidd in, in, in the 2008 Olympic Finals with a kid that had no fear. He impacted a game without scoring the basketball. I think the last guy that could do that was Jason Kidd before he became a three-point shooter. Jason needs to tell me his, his goal is to get a triple-double without scoring a point. You know, the mentality with these parents now is they go to these AAU games, and I've been watching my sons play the last six years, is that they're so caught up into the scoring, and you got to score to make it to the next level. You do not have to score the most points. I evaluate guys, and I want to see guys that know how to play the game. I don't care if he has eight points, but if I see him make four great passes, take a charge, dive on the floor and do the stuff that makes his team win games. For me, that's the kid I'm looking at. So I want to emphasize that we got to eliminate the scoring mentality in our youth basketball in America. No, that is, that's awesome stuff. Like it's so true. And it is, um, you know, especially in the world now with social media and posts and everybody's got, you know, their little clips and they, 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 they put their stuff up that it takes away, um, and, and that influences not just the kids, but influences the parents that are seeing the stuff and, and they get too caught up in that. Um, and so that's great to hear you say that. And hopefully that will uh, impact uh, you know people listening and hopefully they can kind of pass that on. Um, that's a great segue too, T, to talk about. In I've been around you a bunch and we've had conversations and, and talk expand upon, I, I know you kind of have three or four things that are kind of like your main standards of when you go evaluate and you go scout, which really kind of expands upon what you just talked about. Kind of spend a few minutes, if you don't mind, kind of going through that so people can kind of uh, hear, hear what you're really looking at. Yeah, so basically the three things when I go to a game, I, I watch kids warm up, I watch how they play, but the three things that are most important to me is one is hand skills. Hand skills is Basically, are you working on your game? Can you shoot a free throw? That's a hand skill. Can you shoot a basketball mid-range? Can you score around the basket? Can you shoot a three ball? I'm evaluating all the shooting and hand skills. I'm, the hand skills also include can you pass with your right hand on a push pass? Can you push with your left hand push pass? Can you make a bounce pass to the, to the post? 
can you catch the ball when you're running down the floor in transition? Can you catch it and score left? These are all hand skills stuff that's important. And I'm watching not only your right hand, but your left hand. If you're left hand, I'm watching your right. It's really important. And the hand skills is also part of dribbling. Can you handle the ball with pressure? And this is skills that you don't need a coach to work on. You can work on this by yourself in your backyard. You can work in front. If you live in an apartment complex, you can go to the corner. You can take a basketball. You can take a tennis ball. You can take a volleyball. Whatever ball it is, you can work and become better with your hand skills. Next thing I watch is I watch your foot skills. Can you run the floor without falling down? Can you can you go for a rebound and get bumped and, and keep your balance? Is that part of your core balance? Do you have balance when you run the floor? I want to know if you can catch the ball in the post. Do you have a you know footwork to score versus pressure? Uh, can you catch the ball on the wing with your footwork and 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 do you do inside foot? Do you outside foot? I really don't care. Can you create space with your footwork? This, those are all two important part of the skill developments. And again, you don't need a coach to become a better player with your hand and foot skills. You can work on this on your own. You can work in your living room or in your bedroom in front of a mirror on your footwork. That's that's important. You can work on your hand skills. You can take a ball and lay it on your bed and just shoot up to the ceiling. Uh, as long as you, as long as you don't miss the ball, then your mom or dad won't say anything. <laughs> That's, that's real important. So you don't need to have a coach to coach or a trainer every second of the day. You can just do stuff on your own. So better with your hand and foot skills. And the last thing is really important is mental skills. And mental skills for me is, um, is he a good teammate? Does he respond to his teammate? Does he care about his teammates? Does he, does he point a finger at his teammate and made a good pass to him? Does he high five his teammate when he makes a good play? The mental skills, does he look in his coach's eyes when he talks to him? When a coach gets on him, does he pout? Does he, when he sits on the bench, is he cheering his teammates on? I don't care if you're the last player on the bench. Do you have a care factor? Are you, are you looking in the stands? Are you worried about yourself? I'm watching all those details. So the mental skills is, are you a good teammate? Do you care about your team? Are, only, are you cared about only about the points you score or what you do on the floor? And good teammates are important because your team is only as good as your best player to the player that is that sits at the end of the bench because if you're all not on the same page then you got issues and i always tell coaches this and youth and i don't think it's been taught enough you go to these high school and practice or these i can't go to high school practice but college practice you always see the two best players are always doing drills together but i was when i coached i would take the guy that's my walk on or sits at the end of the bench i put him as the best player and let him do a drill because my best player is trying to help him get better and I'm giving this guy confidence that he's part of the team more. And I don't want my best players always in a group. You got to mix your players up in practice, have different drills with different guys, and they got to get to know each other because that's how you become a better team. So my evaluation is hand skills, foot skills, and mental skills, Daniel. That's, that's very important for me when I evaluate talent. And I don't care about how many points you score. It's not part of, my, of what I'm looking at. Yeah. No, it's, I, I wanted, I wanted the, uh, the people listening to, to, to hear that. And, and I've been around you countless times hearing, you know, hearing you expand upon that. And, and that's one of my, my favorite things back when I would be out on the road a bunch and in, in, in Europe. And, you know, uh, I remember there was one night we were in Madrid and it was really late having a dinner till the early hours of the morning, David Griffin, who was a, uh, worked with Phoenix, I think at the time and, 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 mm-hmm. and a couple other, just sitting around the table and hearing you guys talk, he- hearing you guys talk about that and talking about the younger players. And I think we were probably there for the Kings cup. Uh, yeah. and the probably Ricky probably would have been playing at that speaking back to the, the Ruby yep. time, but just, just the things that P 
people think are uh, what you guys are looking at aren't really what you guys are looking at. And um, I, I remember that was one of the things I learned also, you know, from Michael Curry and others is like at Portsmouth and a lot of the pre-draft camps when I work with pros is like, we'd always talk about make head down plays and, and the guys would always be like, what's a, what's a head down play? And that's like when they would dive on a loose floor, or be a good teammate, they'd make you guys look down at your notebook and make a little mark. Like, and that, that's the stuff that we would talk about to the guys, not how many shots can you make and how many can you do this? And are you shooting it every time? Do, do stuff to make yourself notice because um, the majority of the league in the NBA, especially are role players. Like you have, you know, you have your superstars and everybody else. And um, you know, that was the thing like with Curry, Mike was a, you know, he was a leading scorer in Spain and France, all these places. And he came to the NBA and he had a 11, 12 year career by averaging four and a half points a game and playing defense every night. Cause he found a way to fit in and do his role. He couldn't totally score, but you know, who, who would buy into the team concept and who would want to, to sell out. And, and too many people nowadays think that it's, it's, it's not that, that it's the production stuff. Yeah, I agree 100%. That's why, and that's why we love Michael Curry because Michael Curry took his Spanish scoring ability and sacrificed it to understand how he's going to stay in the league and what's going to keep him in the league. And he got it. And when guys get it, they succeed. And you see the guys like PJ Tucker, Patrick Beverly, you know, who all of a sudden now had a big scoring night last night. But he understands that if I play defense, I'm going to help my team win. And a coach, you need guys on the floor that are, that are the glue guys. And those guys make it in the league. And, and I'm sure a lot of, you see a lot of people saying, how's that guy in the league? Well, there's a reason why he's in the league. He does the stuff that helps your team win. Yeah, That's always my favorite thing when I when I hear some just kind of random guy that follows or is just, you know, he's, he says he's a fan or whatever. It's like, oh, that guy sucks. Like, nobody sucks that's in the league. They're all they're all yeah. incredibly good. They just buy in and they find their niche of why they're able to make it. Like, that, there's no bad, you know, there's 450 players, whatever. That, that They all can really, really play. Like, that's, that's absurd to me when I hear that. Um. What I, so let, let, let's spend a couple more minutes. I, I know um, you, you're probably uh, have to hop on the phone and, and go find the next Luca, but let's. I want to. I, I want to have a couple minutes of just some fun stories, some stuff. Talk a little bit about USA basketball because, um, I mean, you're around elite guys every day. But that that seven eight year stretch you had with USA basketball had to be the elite of the elite in stuff with Coach K and being around Jerry Colangelo and just. Just talk a little bit about what that was like on a on a daily basis in the in the in those periods of time with Kobe and with LeBron and and, and Kay and those guys. Yeah, I, you know, look, I'm a, a humble kid that didn't come from much, and and to get asked the opportunity to be part of the USA Olympic team is something to this day I still pinch myself, and and very humble that Jerry Colangelo, Mike Krzyzewski, and Mike D'Antoni, Nate McMillan, and I was with Chris Collins and 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 Wojciechowski, uh every day for the last for seven years and just being around those guys and learning from coach K the gold standards and how he gets players to play at another level. i learned a lot being around him and, you know, he, he treats you like a King. Um, you know, he, he treats you like a family. He lets you, you know, well, first thing when I the USA team, he said, look, you're part of my coaching staff. I want you on the floor. Um, I want you to rebound for guys. I want you to talk to guys. I want you to educate them about the international players. Uh, and I want you to be every day involved in our meetings and everything. So I was very fortunate and, and being around Jerry, who's a godfather of basketball, the same way they just treated you uh, so well. And, um, you know, the, 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 there's a lot of stories uh, to be told. I think one of the things is being around Kobe Bryant and his work ethic. Um, 
I'll give you a quick story. We were in uh, uh, China, and uh, my wife in the morning said, hey, I just worked out at 5 in the morning, and, and Kobe Bryant's in there working out. I'm thinking to myself, we just played a 9 o'clock game in, in, in uh, China, and – you know, we got back at midnight. He's in the gym at five in the morning, already working out. Now we got a meeting at ten thirty. We got practice at eleven fifteen. So we go to practice, and then we come back after that. And then Kobe wants to go shoot for another two hours that night from seven to nine. So the work ethic being around some of those guys was amazing. Same with LeBron, uh, uh, Dwayne Wade. Um, the, the one thing that I realized that the great players just don't happen they work to be to make themselves great they they work on something like kobe would tell me you know look every year i work on a different move to to craft my skills better so it might be a floater in the paint with his left hand but he would do something every day so one of the greatest stories i could tell you and i've said this before and is uh we were playing in 2007 in the prelims in las vegas uh my first time around kobe every day and uh, my job was to motivate the players and get them ready for games and talk to them about our opponent. Well, we were playing Brazil, and I always put uh, back in the day where you make DVDs and, and let the players look at the DVDs of, of who we're playing and who they got to go against. Well, I knew that Barbosa was their best player at the time for uh, Brazil, and I, and, I, and I was thinking that Kobe probably needs to match up against them. And so I'm trying to figure out a way, Daniel, to – motivate him so i go to our video guy i said do me a favor find every clip that leandro barbosa scored on kobe bryant so he comes back to me the next day he goes uh tony good news bad news i said well give me the good news he said i found clips i said what's the bad news he goes i only found 13 in four years <laughs> so i said did you put the 13 on the dvd he said i did so we put the tape under we put the dvd under and he knew he knew he got it for me we go to the meeting the next morning, I'm sitting in the front where all the coaches are, and Kobe was kind of behind me two rows, and he walks in, and I kind of have a slap on the back of my head, and he looked at me, he goes, I got you. He goes, I like you. You all right. And I just kind of smirked in my mind because I'm thinking, he re he watched that, those clips, so he knew exactly. So we go to the uh, – we have that game that day against Brazil. We're in the, we're in the locker room, and we're on the – we talk about matchups in the board, and we didn't have – uh, Kobe on Leandro and I just said, Coach, we need to uh, we need to have Kobe on um, on Leandro. I said, No, this is a good matchup, and I explained to him what I did, and so we made the change. And he was in the locker room. You could tell Kobe was foaming in the mouth, like he wanted to play this game and get this game started so bad. So we go off for warmups, and he just got a different mindset I've never seen on on a player in my life. And we opened up the game. Uh, I think we scored off the tip right away. Brazil brings the ball up. They get the ball into Leandro. Leandro brings the ball up. Kobe's on him full court. I think he turns him left, turns him right. Kobe dies on the floor, knocks the ball loose. LeBron picks it up, dunks it, and the place goes nuts. And our whole staff and everybody go crazy. Well, that one clip from 2007 – we showed that clip before we started every practice of a, uh, before we brought the USA players together. We showed it before every gold medal big game. And the theme was, if we, if we play this way as a team and we play defense, we'll win the gold. And that was probably one of the biggest things I've seen Kobe do. And, you know, it was just me trying to be creative, but it was something that I caught his attention. And I don't think you have to catch his attention much, but it was something that, you know, was a small little sample 
uh, uh, to catch his attention to help us achieve what we did those uh, seven years by winning the Golden Eight and uh, 12 in London. Man, that's so good. Well, listen, I um, we, they, there could be a whole other show just on stories, and then, of course, the off stories with you. Um, it, but I, I can't begin to thank you enough for, for hopping on this and, and to, to use one of your lines you used a little bit earlier that you know, the great ones don't become great. They work at it to be, to be that. that. That's why you are. Um, and, and I hope people that um, got to listen to this episode, um, you, you gave so much stuff to kind of take away. I think this will be a great uh, for, for the long Thanksgiving week as laying around and watching NFL games to kind of to dive in and, and to listen and to learn and, and, and hopefully kind of absorb some of the stuff you said. And, and you're just, you're, you're one of the best. And I've loved the, the past 20 years of getting to learn from you and talk basketball from you. And um, the, my, my favorite takeaway from this T is my, both my boys play soccer and I love it. So yeah, I, I was, you had me at soccer. I was done after, <laughs> after that earlier. <laughs> uh, I'm a big believer. And that's great. You're doing that for your kids. And I think it's important. And, and I think the end of the day is I think for parents and people to understand that you, you want your kids to have fun and, and not put the pressure on them to worry about being the best, but just when they finish that they have fun and they got a smile on their face. For me, that's the most important thing. All right, T. Well, listen, man, I, I appreciate it. Um, I hope you have a great Thanksgiving week, and uh, I look forward to us uh, catching up again really soon, bud. Perfect. Appreciate you. Thanks, Daniel. Thanks for all the great work you're doing for the community. Thanks a lot. Have a great day. All right. Thanks, Tony. Thanks for listening to Pro and Dialogue. You can find Pro and Dialogue wherever you get your local podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Podbean. Please go subscribe. Listen to any of the previous episodes that you have not heard, um, and then hit the refresh button and listen to this one again with Tony Ronzoni because it was just fantastic. Uh, We wish everyone out there a happy Thanksgiving and look forward to uh, catching up with you again soon. 